you are listening to Bloomsbury Radio. And we are now at this stage of the evening, uh, moving into all things UCL, and in particular, the Bartlett School of Architecture within UCL. The Bartlett is UCL's global faculty of the built environment, home to radical thinking about architecture and design since 1841. Site writing, as in S-I-T-E, is a module within Bartlett asking students how they might write site rather than write about site. Students are asked to select a site to research and respond to in writing. And right now we have a flavor of text that encompasses that experience. Tonight, we are joined by David Roberts, a lecturer at Bartlett. Good evening, David. Escape the Bloomsbury Institute with me, through Russell Square, all the way down Southampton Row, across Theobald's Road, past the Bourne Estate. I was raised by storytellers. My mum's parents, Carlo and Antonietta, migrants clinging to their great pilgrimage after the war, from a Sicilian hillside village to a council flat here in Clerkenwell. My grandma whispers, grandestino, meaning great destiny. Her 90-year-old eyes gleam when she really means clandestino, illegal immigrants. Her words updated and mutated as veins have darkened and courage wrinkled. People journey, words journey. Cross Old Street roundabout into Hackney, my home for so many years, down Great Eastern Street to Whitechapel Road. Halfway along, past Aliquan Fried Chicken, Dixie Chicken, Stepney Fried Chicken, and leave at the western fringe of Queen Mary College. You reach a pointed arched doorway in a high wall beyond which lies a cemetery, a small plot not even an acre, marked by over a thousand graves, enclosed by student halls and garden walls of terrace cottages. The tombstones rest flat to the earth, not one with an upstanding tablet. In 23 rows, they keep close company, bare stone or wreathed in moss, full oblong or shattered and absorbed into the ground, held by the roots of 16 trees that split and swallow manuscript. Some inscriptions are still legible, Portuguese and Hebrew, some Spanish, few English, recording little more than foreign names and dates and rare portraits of this community. The bird catcher, sweet poet, maiden, son of the harp player. Others appear to be warm plain until rain collects and fills the faint hollows. And for a moment their ancient epitaphs gleam complete and then are gone. When flooded, the stones become a mirror. In 1492, hundreds of Jew thousands of Jews spent their final night on Spanish soil, forced from their homes to escape the fires of the Inquisition and tortures of the Question Chamber. These were the Sephardim, one of two great groups into which Jews are divided, deriving from the Hebrew for Spain, a land where Jewish and Arabic intellectual and spiritual life once flourished together, a beautiful history of coexistence. They left this golden age and resettled into two distinct civilizations. One route led eastward to the world of Islam, from Morocco across North Africa to Palestine, and from the Mediterranean's northern shores to the Balkans. The other led to the Christian West, to Portugal, where they were soon forced to convert or flee onwards to Holland, southern France, Hamburg, the Americas and England, 
Along with their scanty baggage, the only possession the Sephardim were permitted to carry was their language, Ladino, a combination of ancient Spanish and Hebrew. Those who headed west kept in contact with Spain and their speech evolved with Castilian. But those in the east were cut off, their sweet and mild speech frozen in ancient Spanish. The further they traveled, the more porous their language became. Ladino retained its Hispanic base, but relied on others' languages to evolve and survive, borrowing words and fusing phrases together, legacy to their abandoned cities. Joined with too much Hebrew, Ladino was thought of as overly conservative, with too much Italian, pretentious, and with Greek, funny. The Sephardim carried the culture of this vanished land with them wherever they found refuge, recreating the streets and atmosphere of Spain in their Juderia, Jewish quarters. The floors of synagogues in the Caribbean were often covered deep in sand to recall their past when footsteps had to be muffled to avoid detection. Ladino offered playful freedom through cryptic puns and discreet jokes to cope with living in between two worlds, and its literature held them close to their troubled past. Sephardi poetry found great popularity in everyday life, often introduced to guests after a leisurely meal, and even featured in passports. They wrote of their lost land through consejas, romanzas, coplas, where different languages intertwine so tightly that the speaker is unaware that they are separate, and sayings become so separated from their origins that distance from their homeland mirrors distance from the text. Good words split stones, one proverb suggests. People journey, words journey. Of the Sephardim who traveled west, around 70 had settled in London by the 17th century, living as Maranos, attending mass in a Roman Catholic chapel, in their hearts holding firm to the faith of their upbringing. It was not until 1656 that they dropped all disguise. The burgeoning congregation petitioned for two sites of ritual, a synagogue in a converted house on Creechurch Lane in the city of London, and a burial ground, Beth Haim, House of Life, in Mile End, where we have escaped to. It was then an orchard of 40 fruit trees. It's now known as the Velo, the oldest known Jewish cemetery in Britain, which opened in 1657 and closed a century later. The first Sephardim who settled in London kept themselves as inconspicuous as possible. At this time, England was beginning its devastating imperialist expansion through maritime trading. And within narrow streets, a little world was carved by Jewish merchants, ship owners and gem importers alongside penny barbers, tailors, sugar bakers, cravat washers, diamond polishers, lemon men, and domestic servants. This community administered their own affairs and laws. They offered support to the poor migrants who had joined them in London, setting up societies for apprenticing, circumcision, comforting mourners, dowering poor brides, clothing the destitute, supporting female orphans, tending the sick and burying the dead. It was this same Jewish community that three centuries later sheltered and nurtured my granddad when he slipped into this city as a tailor, offering him work as an assistant in Savile Row. Wary of this Sicilian Catholic in their midst, rabbis unpicked his suits to assure no mixing of wool and linen in breach of the Torah. 
His committed clients, merchants and diamond dealers helped this man of little means and education, but of unusual goodness, to open up his own shop and train his wife and children in his craft. While my granddad met clients, my grandma was a tailor's assistant's assistant, stitching and mending from home while caring for my mum and her brothers. But it was in this new shop that she found her calling and her voice, holding her own among the merchants and dealers. Since my granddad's death, she has once more become cautious to speak English in public, retreating back to a handful of Sicilian songs and rhymes. And as memory and anecdotes grow faint, so too does my childhood. Like her, the last generation of Ladino speakers to have lived Sephardi culture rests in old people's homes. As compulsory education rolled out, Ladino faded under each official language and was almost entirely wiped out in the Holocaust. It survived by virtue of Jews living outside of Europe in societies where women were isolated from education and trade. They clung to this ancient speech through long centuries of concealment, a maternal language preserved in songs that accompanied cleaning, cooking, and needlework, repeated to cradling babies, marrying couples and grieving relatives, tying them to tradition and binding the scattered. However small and fragile, Ladino lives today in the work of great Sephardi thinkers, Primo Levi, Jacques Derrida, and Barak Spinoza. Among the works of Spinoza that have been preserved, there's only one passage in which he makes use of the mother tongue of Sephardim. It's a passage in which he explains the meaning of the reflexive verb, pasearse, to walk oneself in which agent and patient, subject and object, potentiality and actuality are one and the same person in a threshold of absolute indistinction. To walk oneself. I'm taken back to the first time I set foot in the Velo Cemetery in Mile End over 10 years ago. I was a different person then. I walked among the undulating pavement of grainstones and wanted to learn what was omitted from the simple lines of restrained epitaphs. I rummaged in archives, collected facts, proverbs, folktales and poems, often in the Dino to piece together these stones. In the cemetery, the small and great are buried alike, lowered into the grave with feet facing east so that they may rise and walk to the holy land. Some images carved into the stone still sing. Roses, scores of skull and crossbones, small stones with winged cherubs for those who died in infancy, and the occasional arm and hand reaching from the clouds to fell a tree, a motif of a life cut short. I placed hundreds of my fragmentary notes across the cemetery, thoughts held safe to slabs by pebbles. I began to write poems constructed around this work and found phrases sprinkled across the burial ground, each reflecting an aspect of the culture of people within these low walls and their kin beyond the seas. During this obsessive act, the characters of these histories seemed to mirror the character of the stones. I wrote each tombstone a poem. I started with a piece of related archival text, which I layered with my own response. Some of the formal arrangements followed those of Ladino poems, while others echoed appearance. Where full biographies existed, I selected key excerpts. Where there was no clue to the stone's identity, 
I let its tactile nature define the poems. Where slabs were unreadable, the text is as unreadable, scratched like slate, mottled like moss, concealing these histories once again. I delivered each poem on a single postcard to each room of Albert Stern Halls, to students now living in the former Jewish old people's home that surrounds the site. Each student received one postcard wrapped and beribboned with a connection to one stone. The reader engages in the symbolic act of unwrapping history, untying threads, uniting the viewer, the stone and their shared history. I came here today to reread the poems I wrote over 10 years ago in the shadow of my granddad's death. But when I rehearsed my words, they seemed like strangers. I was raised a Catholic, and when I wrote these poems, my faith seemed a quiet constant, but it was soon to waver and wane without my granddad. Underneath them is a turmoil, the many forms of loss that those journeys entail. The Sephardim were forced to conceal the face of faith of their upbringing, but I chose to reject mine. Through such changes, whether forced or chosen, can we still be the people that we were? Pasearse, to walk oneself. I walk myself through the cemetery now, my other self of 10 years ago, my companion, faithless and faithful in step. We tread softly around stones. I see my other self with clarity in these poems, and I see my granddad too. He passed on more than my Roman nose and thick hair. When I wrote these poems, I saw in this interred Jewish community the same charity flowing from the wellspring of faith that their descendants passed on to my granddad. It was in his faith that he gave himself unconditionally to me and to others, in generosity too often unreturned. I feel I'm breaking the bonds of my upbringing as I stand beside myself here, an unbeliever. I fear I'll never find the certainty and goodwill I so admire but hold on to a belief that what he left in me is more important to uphold than the opportunity to see him in life hereafter. I watch great trees tremble and listen to a recording of my granddad singing to us. <laughs> 